You're listening to a Westpac Wire podcast. Westpacwire.com.au. Uh, good evening, everybody, uh, and welcome. Uh, it's great to see such a big crowd here tonight. Uh, we've certainly picked an interesting week uh, to hold an investment event. Um, those of you who follow investment markets, which I'm so sure many of you do, um, would have been following sort of the daily sort of roller coaster, and it's sort of been only going down uh, during this week. So, um, so we've certainly picked an interesting week. Um, uh, as David said, my name is Paul Stark. I look after the direct solutions that we have within BT in terms of superannuation and investments. Um, and what we have here tonight, we have three um, very high quality fund managers uh, who have funds on our BT Panorama platform. Um, I probably should also mention that any discussion tonight uh, is general in nature um, and does not look to consider anyone's personal circumstances or their financial objectives. Um, so with that, I'd love to introduce our three panellists. Um, John Voltes, he told me that I need to just call him JV, uh, who is a portfolio manager from PIMCO Fixed Income. Uh, Julia Forrest, who is a portfolio manager in terms of Pendle Property Securities. And Gerald Stack, who's a portfolio manager for Magellan Global Infrastructure Fund. Um, so I thought the best way to kick off tonight was probably to get each of the three of the fund managers that we have here to tell us a little bit about the fund that they manage. So I might start with you, Gerald. Sure, Paul. Um, so my name's Gerald Stack. I'm a, uh, as Paul said, I'm from Magellan. Uh, I've been at Magellan since uh, 2007, January 2007. The fund itself, um, uh, the Magellan Infrastructure Fund, started in July 2007. So we've been going a little over 13 years, or nearly 13 years, I should say. Uh, today we manage around about $9 billion um, in that strategy, not necessarily in that fund, but in that strategy from investors both here in Australia and around the world. About 50% of that money is from retail investors, about 50% of that money is from institutional wholesale investors. Um, it's progressively grown over time and uh, as we've seen investors sort of embrace infrastructure as an asset class, as a separate asset class, it's uh, you know, continued to grow at sort of a steady rate. Julia? I've been at Pendle since uh, 2003, uh, and our flagship fund has been in existence since uh, 1993. Uh, so I'm responsible for managing the, the REIT funds with a, with a colleague at Pendle Group. Uh, we have around $2 billion in funds under management, and um, our directive really is to give direct property-like returns by investing in the REIT sector and property-related securities. So uh, those securities typically are in shopping centres, office buildings, industrial assets, fund managers, um, they've branched out into you know, childcare centres, service stations. So, um, you know, pretty much investment grade property with, you know, good quality covenants. The sector itself has around $180 billion in assets and the market cap's about $130 billion. The types of returns that we've delivered, so since its inception, since 1993, the fund has returned 10% per annum which is pretty good considering that includes the GFC, which was not kind to REITs. Uh, for the last five years, we've delivered around 12% and in the last year, we've delivered 24%. It's a great return. Where we're sitting at the moment, the sector is yielding around 4.5% and should provide earnings growth of between 2 and 3. So we're looking at total returns, not spectacular, but between 7 and 8%. John? Uh, my name's John Valtois, as uh, Paul pointed out. Uh, I probably operate in the least interesting part of the investment markets, uh, but we would argue the most important part of investment markets. 
Uh, it's okay to say you don't know much about bonds. Uh, being an Australian, I was also born an equity investor. Uh, PIMCO is the world's largest active uh, fixed income or bond manager. Uh, we're headquartered in Newport Beach in Southern California. Uh, we manage around about 1.7 trillion on behalf of global investors. Uh, we've been in Australia since 1997. And in terms of the solutions uh, that we manage on behalf of our clients, uh, there's a lot more to bonds than just lending to governments. Uh, the solutions that we offer really focus on preserving capital, diversifying portfolios and, and generating income. And that involves lending to governments, to corporates, to mortgagees, uh, to a whole host of, of borrowers effectively. And uh, yeah, we'll hopefully learn more about bonds tonight. Okay, fantastic. Look, uh, I suppose if we start with the sort of broad market and conditions uh, and, and um, yeah, the environment for investing. There's a lot of things that are sort of going on. We've got historically low interest rates. Until this week, we probably had, we, we did have historically high equity valuations. Um, we're seeing you know, in, uh, economic growth sort of being impacted potentially by bushfires in Australia, coronavirus, those sorts of things. I'd love to get your thoughts in terms of where, we're at, where you see us at in terms of the economic cycle. And I suppose, how do you see the environment for investing? So I'm, again, John, I might start with you. Yeah, sure. So it, it's, it's fair to say our, from, for the most part, people think about uh, the, the, the bond world in, in the sense that the, the, the bond people typically have a big view from a macro standpoint. And by that, I mean uh, a holistic view of the overall global economy. Uh, and that's certainly our field of, of expertise. Um, with that, the best way to uh, describe how we think about today is that we started thinking about today five years ago. Um, and by that I mean we think about the global economy uh, from a very long-term perspective. And, and the simplest way to describe things today is that there's still too much debt and not enough growth. Now, from, from there, we can go into many different areas. But when we look at markets today, it's fair to say that the business cycle uh, is very extended. Uh, I think it's fair to say that everybody here is well and truly in the know that it's, it's very late or nearing the end. Uh, but markets or, or business cycles, I should say, don't die of old age. There's usually a catalyst um, for that. What we are mindful of is how different factors have influenced uh, asset markets. Uh, we're very mindful that interest rates are very low and have influenced all asset markets. And, and that will certainly have a, have a major bearing on, on return expectations across all asset classes. But bringing it back into that outlook for, for the broader global economy, um, we actually expected the global economy to experience a recover, uh, sorry, recovery um, at this stage of the year. There was significant easing uh, throughout 2019. Financial conditions were very, very supportive, a lot of supportive uh, central bank activity, and we were seeing some fundamental pickup in, in activity in the, in the early days of, of 2020. Um, our base case is still for that to materialise. However, we are mindful of the effects of, of what's taking place uh, throughout China at the moment. So uh, it's, it's kind of a little bit like watch this space, but as an active investor, you can't do that. And, and what we're doing is really focusing on ultra high quality assets. Uh, for the last 12 months, we've been very, very conservatively positioned, focusing on high levels of liquidity and, and not taking on too much risk because 
the uncertainty is building because the business cycle is very late and there is a lot of imbalances with respect to valuations. Julia, you I said it better myself. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it is a very long cycle. The equity market cycle itself has been going for 11 years. Economic cycle in Australia has been going for 29 years in an official sense since we had our last uh, recession. Um, the way that we look at things, which is quite similar, um, uh, we, I mean, we were looking for supportive conditions for real estate, which, you know, real estate benefits from low interest rates, and we were looking for low bond rates. We, we had figured that uh, we would see a few more rate cuts domestically and that eventually the Reserve Bank would sort of maybe use QE to bring the long end down. So we, we had thought that we would see a supportive environment for, for commercial real estate. But um, we have been focusing on quality real estate. So when I say quality, we look at the covenant, we look at the length of the lease, um, we look at the, you know, the types of tenants. Um, but we also look to see whether the rent that the tenant's paying, whether it's an office tenant or a retail tenant, whether the rent is affordable for the business model. So we, we're, very, we're very focused on dividend sustainability. So I guess we've been positioned quite conservatively as well because we, you know, we're not sure when the cycle will end. Um, I don't think there's any central bank that wants it to end or government that wants it to end. Everybody's been trying to extend the cycle. Um, so trying to second guess what policy responses will be to situations that arise is very, very difficult. So we've been trying to set our portfolio for quality as well. Gerald? Um, so up until two weeks ago, uh, we would have said that the, the baseline position, the base case was uh, for, uh, just as the guys have talked about, really for grinding away, for economies to grind away. It was never going to be a picnic, but that the economies would continue to grind away things. Uh, you would see economic growth, uh, low growth. Uh, low, we were definitely in the lower for longer camp um, with lower inflation, lower compared to historical measures. And that was, let's say, a 50 to 60% probability in our book. Um, uh, we then have a probability of a worse outcome and a probability of a better outcome. The worse outcome was the one that we were particularly concerned about, and that's high inflation and high interest rates. It's an issue that we've talked about publicly for quite some time and, and an issue that's been of concern to us, and it goes to valuations. Valuations are high because rates are low and growth has been supportive. Um, so we've been concerned about that. Uh, and, and spend probably the bulk of our time to the extent that we worry about macro issues, worrying about what could cause that. Um, could a, a supply shock into the system? Could, um, uh, could we see inflation coming from somewhere? And, and the answer was we couldn't see it coming, which didn't mean that it wasn't going to come, it's just we couldn't see where it was going to come from. So that, that's been our position. Um, as equity investors, we're typically going to be pretty fully invested, and we have been for some time. Um, uh, we continue to be invested. Now, corona uh, the coronavirus has thrown a bit of a, uh, a, 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 you know, a spade in the middle of all of that. Um, and so we're watching that pretty carefully. I don't think we have any easy answers on that, um, but we're watching that pretty carefully and we could, uh, we could understand that there would be some pretty profound impacts both on global economic growth as well as regional growth and indeed on Australia if the worst situation um, presents itself. <coughs> Difficult to understand what that is at the moment, frankly, but uh, that's what we're watching pretty carefully. So we would continue to say, with a medium-term outlook, we would continue to believe that you're going to get growth, low inflation, um, albeit with maybe a little bit of a hiccup in the next 12 months. Okay. Um, a few of you have mentioned sort of this lower for longer in terms of interest rates. Um, and you probably, you mean, each of you sort of manage asset classes that um, many investors mightn't have in their portfolio. I'd, I'd really like to get your thoughts in terms of the asset class that you look after and how that might help in terms of that search for yield and things like that. So I might start with you, Julia. 
Sure. Well, um, we look at commercial real estate. Um, there is an element of residential development in there as well, um, but it's typically direct property-like returns, so um, like a, a yield on, a, say, an office building and the growth that comes from the rents with each review. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of adding that to your portfolio, it's... It's not, it's not, you know, my, my asset class isn't, isn't overly exciting. I find it exciting. But in terms of total returns, it's, they're quite predictable because you've got quite long lease terms. Um, the, the wild card, as, you know, as Gerald mentioned, is, is inflation and what it does to bonds because REITs are measured against bonds. Um, if you look at the, the dividend yield for the sector at the moment, which I think I mentioned before, is 4.5%. Um, bonds are yielding, I mean, slightly lo lower than 1%, but that's about 380 basis points over where bonds are at the moment. If you look at the long-term average, it's around 200 basis points. So we still think that there's quite a lot of value relative to bonds uh, in our asset class, even though the sector looks expensive relative to its own history. So we think that the sector will continue to provide supportive returns. And if you choose um, a high-quality uh, buildings and, uh, and and assets with good quality covenants, the, the returns are relatively predictable. So um, I think I think that would add to, you know, well to a portfolio. The, 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 the tens, the, the shocks that tend to happen that um, unravel commercial property markets, you know, there's, the, there's yields, you know, there's bond yields, but there's supply shocks in terms of um, the supply, so, you know, big supply of uh, office buildings that come onto the market. Um, you know that what that does to rents, and that's you know it's fairly foreseeable because you just need to look out on the horizon to look to see you know the cranes on the horizon. I guess the one area um, that has impacted commercial real estate is the internet and online um, retailing, which has impacted shopping centres, shopping centre rents, and shopping centre values, which is a, a sector that we you know that we're extremely underweight in. So, but I still I still think commercial real estate would definitely add to your portfolio. John, in terms of bonds. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm going to ask the audience for, for a hand in, in, in a second, but before I do that, uh, the bond market is, is a pretty big place. Uh, the global bond market of, of everything, including governments, corporates, mortgages, you name it, uh, is, is around about $110 trillion uh, in size. You compare that to the global equity market, uh, it's around about $75 trillion in size. So it's a, it's a pretty large universe in which to identify really good sources of, of yield, uh, as well as places to preserve capital. Uh, the question I have for all of you is, um, how many of you, with a show of hands, owns uh, an Australian bank stock? How many of you own Australian bank shares? It's really good. Yep, we're all, uh, I won't say all, because I don't own Aussie equities. <laughs> um, okay, so how many of you own um, Australian bank debt? Okay, excluding hybrids. Okay, cool. I mean, that was just for my interest to see how many people actually uh, know that they own Australian bank debt. Most people don't know because nobody wants to know about bonds. Um, the reason I'm asking this is because the Australian banks are some of the highest quality financial institutions globally. Um, a very high quality financial institution um, like the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, for instance, issues or has around about 800 individual debt issues outstanding. So all of you own one stock, one share of CBA, um, yet there are 800 individual securities you could own from, from the Commonwealth Bank, for instance. Now that's just one issuer in a AAA rated sovereign nation, a very safe place to invest. So the yields on Australian banks 
aren't very attractive, but I tell you what, it's a high quality institution and you can lend in many different parts of what we call the yield curve. For, for anyone keen to talk more about the yield curve, we can catch up later. But I'm highlighting this because Australia is a small part of the, the global bond market. So bond yields are low, sure. Uh, but the global bond market is a very large place. Uh, in what we do, we cover 10,000 issuers globally. So while we think interest rates are low, my colleagues in Europe say, why are interest rates so high in Australia? Um, but my colleagues in America and other parts of the globe uh, are looking at yields that are much, much higher than, than are what are offered here in Australia. And depending on the industry sectors, uh, or the types of bonds or, or institutions that you're lending money to, you can get some pretty handsome um, yields uh, from those lending practices. So when we look at markets today, we still see plenty of areas to invest. We think you just need to be mindful of, of the risks that may be out there. In terms of infrastructure and where it might sort of fit in? So the key here is for us is definition, how we define the infrastructure investing universe, what we're willing to invest in. Um, investors have typically defined infrastructure by virtue of its physical characteristics. That is a big, ugly piece of capital equipment that costs a lot of money to build with a long series of cash flows into the future. So big money out the door day one, you build a a transmission line or an airport or a toll road or something, money out the door day one, long series of cash flows into the future. Um, uh, so that's the first part. The second part is that they're essential assets. So they're assets that doesn't matter what happens, you're going to keep on using. The provision of energy, the provision of water, the provision of transport. And that's important because it doesn't really matter what happens to price or underlying economics, you'll keep on using those uh, services. So you have very reliable demand and hence those reliable cash flows into the future. Now, that, why is that important? Well, these guys have stolen my thunder here a bit, and I'm a bit discombobulated by this because normally I start by saying I'm dull, colourless and boring and my whole team will tell you that. Mark's just with me over there. He'll happily tell you that later on. And these guys have tried to steal the dull, colourless and boring ground from me tonight. <laughs> But that is the essence of these businesses. They generate very reliable, predictable, uh, indeed boring revenue streams, earning streams. Um, and as a consequence of that, you're, you, that's what gives you certainty about yield over time. So an infrastructure stock today, or an infrastructure portfolio today is gonna deliver you around about three to three and a half percent. Um, uh, obviously, as capital prices rise and fall, so will the yields. So your total return from infrastructure today, we would say, defining it as we do, and no doubt I'll talk about that a little bit later on, that's one of my favourite topics, um, is around about 5% plus inflation. Okay, so let's call inflation two, that gives you a total return of seven, around about half of that's yield, and about half of that's capital growth. And provided we define this tightly and don't introduce a bit of excitement into my life, don't like excitement, uh, provided we define that very tightly, then it really isn't going to matter too much over a three to five year time frame what the world throws at us because people will keep turning on the lights. It's my experience that once you've had electricity, you're not going to stop using it. They're going to keep going to the bathroom. I've got daughters, I can guarantee you that one. <laughs> and they're going to keep using transport. Transport, the demand for transport has grown with GDP over time at about two times GDP. It won't grow at two times GDP forever, but it will continue to grow. Um, and why? Because people get wealthier and the cost of transport continues to decline in real terms. So the demand for these services is very reliable and that's what underpins your yield here. Um, so yield will, will remain a part of the infrastructure investment um, outcomes um, along with some capital growth. Okay, terrific. Um, 
I, I sort of want to turn a little bit to, I suppose, some of the risks that you see. And I think, I mean, we've seen investment markets this week and um, all the talk in terms of coronavirus. I'd love to get your thoughts in terms of, as investors, how you're thinking about you know, and some of those risks like the coronavirus. I might start with you, Gerald. Okay, so as I've touched on, the, the, the physical characteristics or the, or the nature of the cash flow characteristics of, of infrastructure are key here. A lot of money out the door day one, long series of cash flows into the future. Um, once you've built that asset, the government tends to decide that those long, reliable cash flows, they want a piece of that. They tend to want to take those away from you a little bit. Um, and that's happened here in Australia, in the US, in the UK, and so on. Um, so we talk about that as sovereign risk. That can be tax rates. That can be them playing around with your concession rights. Those who are old enough to remember might remember that when Bob Carr first were, went for, to be elected as Premier of New South Wales, one of his key tenets was he was going to get rid of the tolls on toll roads. I've heard that a few times at um, elections. Um, and he did that, and it was, he campaigned on that. And four weeks after being elected, he's sort of came out and had a press conference and says, yeah, well, it turns out they've got contracts and we can't get rid of those tolls. So what we're going to do essentially instead is we're going to pay part of the bill, cash back, which still exists today. Um, as a toll road owner, there's nothing better than having someone else pay for someone to use your road. So that's, that's the sort of sovereign risk environment we want. We want to be protected by, uh, um, uh, by uh, the sovereign, the, by the rule of law. Um, uh, so th that's, that's key to the way that we think about things and sovereign risk is always a risk and it's probably more elevated today, if I'm honest, than it has been in my career. Um, and the rise of social licence issues is um, something that we get confronted with all the time. So governments and populations unhappy with um, traffic, with paying for tolls, with uh, paying for airports, with paying for energy is a continual issue and it means that companies have to make sure that they have a value proposition and that they're being responsible providers. So that sovereign risk is an issue, it's something that we look at very carefully. The, the second issue, again, long series of cash flows, that means rates, which we've already talked about, is a key issue. Um, uh, interest rates ultimately reflect the valuation of those future cash flows. So if interest rates rise, that's a problem for us. The value of those future cash flows declines. Now. The nature of infrastructure, because it's an essential service and typically a monopoly, indeed, if it's not a monopoly, we're probably not going to call it infrastructure um, because if it's not a monopoly, it probably doesn't need to be regulated. There's competition and we don't like competition. Competition's great for consumers and pretty terrible for investors. So if it's got no competition and it's providing an essential service, then um, a regulator is typically there to make sure that consumers get protected. Um, uh, and the regulator, for hit, while limiting your price, also makes sure that you can put your price increase through, and that price increase typically matches inflation. So inflation and interest rate rises flow through, provided it's about inflation. So the, no the nominal effect passes through, the inflation passes through. An underlying increase in, in real interest rates, which is the real cost of money, that hurts us. Um, so we've seen in the last decade, real interest rates decline and decline and decline. Um, uh, hence, as I talked about before, the issue that we've been concerned about uh, is interest rates rising. And when I that, I'm, I particularly mean real interest rates. Now, as, as it stands here today, that's not the issue that I'm losing sleep about. There are other issues, but that's not one of them. Um, so real interest rates, sovereign risk, they're the two key issues for us. Julia, in terms of key risks that you see and how you sure. guys are thinking about it? Um, well, 
interest rates, um, pretty much as, as Gerald said, uh, in terms of fi financing costs, but also in terms of the value of the underlying assets. Um, the other concern would be that your tenants can't pay uh, the rent, uh, that the tenants go broke. Um, uh, so the, the, you know, what the service that you're providing uh, for the occupation of space needs to be affordable um, and you, you want a limited supply of that competing space. So, um, yeah, it would be interest rates and we want to make sure that our tenants can continue to pay rents. John? Uh, pretty straightforward and maybe channeling Gordon Gecko from the 80s, but uh, greed uh, is probably our, our biggest risk uh, that we're mindful of and by that we mean there simply isn't enough uh, instruments out there for yield-hungry investors. Uh, Australia, we probably haven't had to deal with this uh, so much because we've had a pretty uh, high cash rate for a long time and term deposits been, have been able to give people some decent uh, levels of return for, for uh, very little risk. But what we're seeing uh, more and more of is an increasing appetite for taking risk in order to either maintain uh, income or, or to seek out those higher returns. Um, we think that appetite and that, that desire, that insatiable desire to, to keep maintaining those higher return levels means taking on increasing risk. And, and you know, it's actually a really fascinating time at the moment because I'm, I dare say, without generalising for everyone here in the audience, that everyone is uh, looking at reporting season and everyone's probably looking at profits and, and, and everything else. Meanwhile, I said to our credit analyst uh, only a few days ago, I said, oh man, you must be sick and tired of reporting season, um, all the long hours, et cetera, and he's going, reporting season? I don't have time to look at reporting season. The high yield bond market here in Australia has been non-existent for, for, for forever, basically. Um, last year, you may recall, David Jones came to market with an issue, I think we had Virgin as well. In the last uh, three weeks, we've had uh, a large number of high yield uh, borrowers or in other words issuers coming to market seeking uh, debt capital when historically the high yield market here in Australia has been closed. There has been no access for these low quality borrowers but today because uh, there is an insatiable appetite and need for yield um, there is a bid, there is plenty of capital being allocated to these borrowers. And so I guess with that in mind, uh, that's a domestic consideration and, and don't worry, well, you don't have to worry about it because you, you can't get access to it from, from you know, Comsec or, or whatever broker you use. But globally, um, that's something you need to think about in terms of taking on um, additional risk or unknown risk. So if there's, if there's a few key points that we really want you to take away from this evening, it's just being very, very mindful of making sure uh, the investments that you're making are, are very, very high quality. And above everything else, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bore you tonight by saying make sure you, you're investing in liquid instruments because um, the plumbing has changed post uh, GFC and liquidity uh, in markets is, is definitely gonna change. And that's something that at our IC level is spoken about every single day. Okay, I'm gonna ask one more question and then we're gonna open it up to the audience. Um, we talked a little bit about risks. I'd love to get your thoughts in terms of the areas that you look after, one sector that you think is well positioned for growth. So um, I might get, start with you, Julia. Sure. Uh, well, I would say uh, industrial assets are probably the best position. So we have a very large investment in a group called Goodman Group. Um, which sources a lot of income from the funds management division. So they develop a lot of industrial assets, which they co-own with a lot of their uh, partners. So they develop, they, they manage those funds, and then they themselves own assets as well. So 
the industrial assets aren't the old industrial sheds that you're thinking of. They're pretty much high-tech distribution centres, which you know online retailers are putting all their stock in and distributing from there. And they've got operations all around the world. So industrial, it's it's priced relative to its history, it looks quite expensive, but the amount of growth that's coming through, because not only do you have the online groups, you have uh, all of the conventional retailers uh, and other businesses, everybody wants cost out. And this is the opportunity, this is the way that you do it. So you need to have well positioned, uh, in terms of location, industrial sheds. So industrial would be the, the preferred asset class for us. Okay, Gerald? Your thoughts in terms of sectors position for growth? Uh, yes, so when we think about growth, we're particularly thinking about structural growth. So long-term, 10, 20 year growth. Um, and for us, if you think about our universe as being infrastructure on one hand or utilities on the other, utilities are not a, you're not gonna expect too much growth there, the regulator limits your total return. In infrastructure, it's not earnings that gets regulated, but it's price, it's the toll on a toll road. It's the uh, price you pay going through an airport, that's typically linked to inflation. So that's regulated, but the passengers are not, and therefore you can earn a high and growing return on capital over time. So toll roads, urban toll roads, transurban, uh, think Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, traffic networks, these are uh, population centres, they also own toll roads, urban toll roads in Washington, same thing, where the population is forecast to grow at around about 1.5% for about the next 30 years or so different numbers in different regions, but ballpark in those three cities. Um, uh, while investment managers like me love toll roads, I love to hear that beep as you go through, that makes me <laughs> special joy in my heart. Uh, but the typical punter doesn't, I get that, they don't like paying for that. But, and, and the reason I talk about that is, okay, the free roads are full, that's why we have toll roads. Free roads are full and governments are broke, essentially. So as population <laughs> continues to come into these regions, uh, it's inevitable that the traffic will continue to grow on those roads. It won't necessarily happen in a smooth manner. It'll happen, uh, you know, uh, some years it'll be reasonably flat and other years it'll grow quite strongly, but it's, it's inevitable that if the Australian population continues to grow in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane uh, and Washington, similarly in the US, um, that you're gonna continue to get traffic growth that will mean revenue growth, that will mean earnings growth as night follows day. The same with airports. Airports have grown passengers two times GDP for about, you know, basically since Adam was a boy. Um, and that will continue to happen. Why people get wealthier, the cost of travel continues to decline. And the third one for us is, um, is uh, telecommunication towers. Um, you only have to watch people wandering down the street looking at their phone um, to understand that data in today's society is exploding. Cisco forecasts that to grow at roughly 40% per annum. The amount of data that people are using to grow at 40% per annum for the next five years. That happens in my house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, the more mobile phones, the more data that's getting used, the more devices that use data means the more uh, telecommunications infrastructure, mobile phone towers um, and the like that you need. Um, and so we would expect to see continued strong growth in underlying cash flows, in, in, in capital invested and in cash flows uh, generation to those companies over the next, uh, certainly the next uh, decade. Okay, John? Yeah, uh, in short, the US homeowner, um, that's where we see a really nice opportunity for just for some consistent income and, and pretty attractive levels of income. Uh, and so the, the, the best vehicle for that we think is, is US mortgages. So. You're probably thinking, oh, this guy, I've just seen the big short. Uh, are these the same instruments uh, that they were talking about? Well, the short answer is yes, but uh, a lot's changed. 
Um, and, you know, we're all dealing with re-regulation of the entire financial system and, and Australia was pretty, in, in, in our opinion, a little bit slow to that and I'll touch on that at the end. But um, the US homeowner is probably one of the highest quality borrowers in the globe at the moment. Uh, for anyone that does follow uh, fixed income, you may have read some headlines over the last 12 to 18 months about the significant debt consumed by corporates or just companies borrowing money. Um, there are some pretty big imbalances as it relates to corporates borrowing uh, debt and, and we're not comfortable with that. And so our preference is to, and for our preference for, for a long time in fact, post GFC, has been to lend to the US homeowner. Um, just to, to give you some detail of, of you know, one fundamental, uh, prior to the GFC, the average loan to value ratio was you know, over 110%. Today, that loan to value ratio in general is around about 60%. So post GFC, uh, consumers have been paying down debt and the homeowner has been building up a lot of equity in their homes, uh, improving the home balance sheet. Meanwhile, corporates in the US have been relevering their balance sheets. And, and just as everyone here is a fundamental investor, uh, so are the bond people, right? We look at fundamentals too. Uh, we don't like those fundamentals in the corporate world, so we prefer to lend to the US homeowner. Uh, we also, there's also some pretty big structural imbalances with respect to uh, dwellings being built for population growth, so there are structural imbalances. Uh, and we also forecast US home prices to appreciate uh, to the tune of four to five percent over the next two to three years uh, as well. Um, and, and the other point that I'll just touch on, which is likely you're going to hear more about in years to come, is the concept of re-regulation was something that really characterised that uh, post-GFC environment. Um, in case you were living under a rock, uh, we coined the phrase the new normal in 2009 to describe that post-GFC environment, which was characterised by deleveraging, uh, deglobalisation and re-regulation. Um, here in Australia, you're probably aware that the banks uh, don't lend the way they used to. Uh, and they're probably never ever going to go back to the way they used to lend. You're seeing a lot more uh, different borrowers stepping in to fill that gap. Um, this trend has been playing out for a long time globally. It's certainly becoming more present down here. But basically, there's a, there's a huge gap in between the demand for lending and the availability or the people that can lend and ultimately private lenders step in. And it's firms like PIMCO that step in and make available that private capital to those borrowers um, that, that may not have access to, 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 to borrowing, basically. So there's just a, a few themes that, that we think will uh, be a good source of growth over the next few years. Okay, terrific. Well, look, thank you, everybody. I do hope you've enjoyed tonight. Um, thank you, Gerald. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, John. Uh, I hope you had a really enjoyable evening uh, and good night, and thank you for coming. That's all from us today at Westpac Wire. For more, head to westpacwire.com.au.